Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing meditation. Specifically, we're going to be exploring chapter 11 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. In chapter 11, this chapter is titled Meditation, Developing Your Practice, and we dive into countless details about developing and establishing a meditation practice that is going to help benefit you through training the mind. There's four primary meditation techniques and types that we explore in this chapter. There's also four different meditation postures, and there's a lot of other content that we dive into as part of this chapter. So today, we're going to be jumping into this content and making sure that you have an opportunity to fully understand all the different aspects of developing a meditation practice and give you a chance to ask questions so that you can further develop your meditation practice. So let's discuss this and move forward with your learning today. First, let's discuss kind of why we would actually want to meditate to begin with. Meditation is part of the practice and teachings that Gautama Buddha shared in order to train the mind to this enlightened mind state or this mental state of enlightenment or Nibbana. This mental state is a purification of the mind. It's a training of the mind to eliminate greed and craving, essentially the same thing, hatred, anger, also ill will is in there, and we have frustration, irritation, annoyance, all those things coming out of that same poison, and then delusion, ignorance, or unknowing of true reality. So these three poisons are essentially what we're working to eliminate from the mind through this training of the mind and purification of the mind. So we have greed, hatred, and delusion, or craving, anger, and ignorance, or unknowing of true reality. In these three poisons, there's specific antidotes that we practice in order to train the mind, purify the mind. Part of this training involves meditation. It's not 100% of the training. You can't meditate your way to enlightenment. It's not possible. There's a lot more that you need to learn and practice as part of attaining this mental state of enlightenment. But today in chapter 11, we're going to be exploring meditation because it is such an important aspect of the training of the mind that it's very important that you have very detailed teachings and guidance on developing a meditation practice. Because while you can't meditate your way to enlightenment, 
you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without meditation either. So it's vitally important that someone does develop a regular, consistent practice of meditation. So let's get into this chapter and into this content. The first thing that I would like to share with you is just a few words from Gautama Buddha on meditation, just some very general, general teachings that he shared. Of course, in his teachings over 45 years, he shared extensive details on meditation and various reasons and purposes and how to actually meditate and things like this. But we don't have time to go through all of that that he taught in his 45 years. So I just want to give you kind of some general guidance of some things that he said that I think can help guide our discussion here and help you understand why we're actually meditating. One of the phrases that I like to share that he shared is he essentially said, meditate or lest you will regret it later. His actual words on this were a lot longer than this. He actually said, meditate bhikkhus, do not be negligent lest you will regret it later. Essentially what he was saying is don't be complacent or else you will regret it later. And he says, this is my instruction to you. That is essentially what he shared. Now, we don't know 100% of what he was saying by lest you will regret it later. He didn't use guilt or shame or fear in order to teach and share his teachings because part of his teachings were to actually eliminate guilt and shame and fear from the mind. So he didn't use that in order to motivate people, in order to practice his teachings. This particular phrase is probably the closest thing that I've ever seen to Gautama Buddha kind of nudging a little bit and just kind of reminding people to learn and practice these teachings or else you'll regret it later. What I feel that he was probably referring to here is the cycle of rebirth because we know that if you don't attain enlightenment in this life, you will be reborn into a new existence. And being reborn is not the goal, particularly if you haven't learned or practiced these teachings at all, and you're reborn into one of the lower realms of hell, afflicted spirits, or animal realm. These realms are essentially like prisons. Once you're reborn into one of those realms, it's very difficult to get back to the human state again. Being in the human state is the perfect state in order to learn and practice the teachings to cultivate the mind and actually attain enlightenment. So all of us have been previous beings in the past, countless, countless, countless beings, and we would have been moving throughout these different realms at multiple times in previous lives, especially in the animal realm. You've probably been many, many different animals, but you just don't have memories of that at this particular time. But as you learn and practice these teachings, you may start to observe previous lives. There are certainly people who learn and practice these teachings who have observed previous lives. And if you haven't had that experience yet, then that's okay. Not everybody will who attains enlightenment, but there's a good chance that you might at some point. And if you do, you will have the truth to know that the cycle of rebirth is actually real. It's truth. It's 100% true. But I feel that that's essentially what Gautama Buddha was referring to here when he said, meditate or less you will regret it later. 
Because if we go through this life and we're complacent and we don't actually apply time and effort and energy to learn, practice these teachings and actually do meditation, which is going to help to train the mind, and we're actually reborn into another existence, especially in the lower realms, it's going to be extremely hard to ever get back to this human state again. And even if we get reborn into this human state again, from there, we're essentially starting all over in the human realm. We have to learn how to walk again, how to talk again. We have to learn how to read and write. We have to learn so many different things. We have to go through aches and pains. You know, our teeth fall out as children. We fall, we break our arms, we break our legs. We experience all this bodily sickness and aging and death. We have all these different experiences of people around us dying. There's a certain amount of misery associated with this human state. Of course, there are certain pleasures and certain enjoyment in this human state as well. But in order to experience those, there's also a whole lot of sorrow and sadness and frustration and irritation that we experience in this human state as well. So by learning and practicing these teachings, we actually evolve the consciousness to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, which is the enlightened mind. And therefore, the more time and effort that we apply to learning and practicing these teachings to include meditation, we will evolve our consciousness or awaken our consciousness to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So by applying effort to meditate, we will be able to potentially attain that mental state. So that's essentially what I feel the Buddha is referring to here when he says, or less you will regret it later. So motivating, encouraging, and supporting, never using guilt or fear or shame in order to encourage people to actually learn and practice the teachings. So this is an important phrase or teaching that I feel that is important to understand Gautama Buddha's guidance here and why meditation is so important because we're training the mind. And then the second quote that I like to share kind of at a very, very high level about what Gautama Buddha taught about meditation is he says, a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. Okay, a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. The pot is the mind and the stand is the meditation practice. So essentially, if the mind doesn't have this stand, this solid stand of meditation practice, it's easy to tip over. It's easy to become discontent. It's easy to become angered, frustrated, irritated, annoyed, having boredom or loneliness or shyness or guilt or shame or fears, jealousy, all of these discontent feelings that the mind experiences. It's easy for those things to happen if we don't have this stand this meditation practice. And the more that you learn about meditation, the more that you practice meditation, this stand becomes wider and wider and wider. So now if you're not meditating at all, of course, your mind is going to be easy to tip over. But if you've just started meditation or you've only been at it for a few months or so, or you haven't really had any teaching and guidance on how to meditate, then your stand is, is fairly small. 
it's kind of like a narrow little rod. So it's still kind of easy to tip over this, this, this pot, this, this mind. So the idea is, is to learn meditation with the guidance of teachers, practice it more and more so that you make this stand wider and wider and wider. The foundation or the base of this stand becomes more and more stable. So the pot becomes more and more stable. One of the things that the Buddha talked about when he discussed an enlightened mind or a mind that is liberated, he talked about it as an unshakable mind. Because once you learn the truth and you observe that independently, gaining this wisdom to liberate the mind, the mind becomes unshakable. Nobody and nothing can shake your mind. It doesn't matter what happens around you. It doesn't matter what other people say or what other people do. It doesn't matter what situation or what experience you find yourself in. The mind is unshakable. There is no discontentness no matter what. And the only way that you get there is through learning and practicing the teachings, which includes meditation. So a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. Another way to say that is a pot with a stand is difficult to tip over or a mind with a really strong, stable stand, a really strong, stable meditation practice is difficult to tip over. So keep that in mind as we're talking today and as you're working to develop your meditation practice, that a mind with a solid, stable meditation practice is difficult to tip over. If you're finding yourself irritated or frustrated or angered or annoyed or lonely or bored or sad or jealous or any of these discontent emotions and feelings that the mind goes through, if you're experiencing those things, then realize that you have more work to do to further develop this meditation practice and further develop your understanding of the teachings so that you can attain an unshakable mind. That's the goal. This next content that I'd like to share with you is just kind of starting out with some meditation basics. Let's just discuss what is meditation. Let's start us off there, okay? This is where the chapter starts in chapter 11. I start off with just a description of what meditation is because there's this word meditation has kind of come into our modern language and a lot of times people use the word meditation in a lot of different ways. And it's important that we understand what is meditation before we actually dive into developing this meditation practice. Meditation is a dedicated, independent training session where you're actively training the mind, okay? If we read exactly what I have here, I say meditation is a technique actively used to train the mind to eliminate or cultivate various qualities of mind during dedicated, independent, purposeful training sessions. Okay, so this is someone who's in one of the four postures that we're going to be discussing today, which is seated, lying, standing, and walking. There's four dedicated positions that somebody would employ in order to actively train the mind through a purposeful training session where we're training the mind to actually eliminate certain qualities from the mind or cultivate 
certain qualities in the mind. And we're going to discuss what that elimination of certain qualities and cultivation of various qualities is. We're going to discuss that today. But I want to make sure that we understand exactly what we're talking about here because sometimes I see or hear or, or talk to people that say, you know, I'm going to go for a jog and meditate or I'm going to go garden and meditate or I'm going to go walk the dog and meditate or I'm going to go for a drive in the car and meditate. This isn't meditation. We can't ride a bike or jog or walk the dog or garden or drive and meditate at the same time. We're not actively training the mind during those periods of time. When we're driving, we're driving. When we're riding a bike, we're riding a bike. When we're gardening, we're gardening. When we're walking the dog, we're walking the dog. Now, while you're doing those things, it may be relaxing to the mind and the mind might become more calm and more soothed because of that activity that you're doing. But that's not meditation. Or while you're doing those activities, you might have awareness of mind and you might be aware of what's in the mind as you're doing these activities because you're bringing your activity down to kind of more singular focused where I'm just jogging or I'm just riding a bike or I'm just gardening and the mind becomes single-mindedness and we start having single-mindedness as part of these activities. Now that's beneficial. These activities are definitely beneficial for the mind and the body those are important things that we can be doing, but it's important to understand that those things by themselves aren't meditation. So if somebody is gardening and they think that they're meditating, then they may not develop an actual dedicated, independent, purposeful training practice where they're actually training the mind and they need to do that. You can't do all these other activities and avoid this dedicated, independent, purposeful training sessions that I'm going to teach you today. So it's very important to develop this practice where you're training the mind through independent, dedicated, purposeful training sessions to eliminate certain qualities from the mind and cultivate certain qualities in the mind. And when you do that, what you're going to notice is your time gardening or jogging or walking the dog or talking with friends or having business meetings, those are going to be more beneficial for you because you are meditating and you have a regular practice of meditating and training the mind. All of these other activities are going to go much better for you because your mind is going to have more singleness of mind. You're going to have more concentration, more clarity of mind. That's one of the results, one of the benefits of meditating. So you're actually going to experience the benefits and reap the rewards of that meditation practice in these other activities. But these other activities by themselves are not meditation. So it's important to develop this dedicated, independent, purposeful training sessions where you're consistently meditating on a consistent daily basis, okay? So this is meditation. Secondly, What's important is that you have a teacher to help you learn how to meditate and helps guide you in developing your practice. Only person that would be able to develop a meditation practice by themselves and actually attain results of an enlightened mind is a Buddha. The last known Buddha that existed 
in the world existed over 2,500 years ago. And the world is unaware of any other Buddha that has arisen since that time. So one of the things that makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they don't have any teachers. They don't have any guides. They don't have anybody who is helping them on this path. And once they become awakened through their own understanding of the teachings and their own practice, then they're able to guide countless other beings through their teachings to attain the same mental state of enlightenment. So that's part of what makes a Buddha a Buddha. There's other criteria as well that you can see in chapter three, but essentially a Buddha is going to be self-awakened. They're going to awaken their mind through their own teachings and their own practice. But everybody else needs teachers and guides to help you learn and guide you on this path. I've actually had some students that have come to me over the years that have tried to do meditation for themselves using YouTube videos or different resources that are out there. And unfortunately, some of them have had unfortunate results. Now, some people can do just fine for a while meditating on their own and nothing adverse will happen. You know, they'll just not be meditating as well as they could. They won't be making as much progress as they could. And they'll just kind of eventually reach out and find a teacher. And then they'll notice that their practice will really improve once they actually have a teacher who can help guide them and instruct them on meditation and how to improve their practice. But there's been a few occasions where a few students have reached out to me having attempted to learn meditation on their own and they had adverse reactions. Um, they've had um, hallucinations, they've had delusions, they've had um, repetitive thoughts, and now their mind is kind of like uh, stuck in this repetitive cycle of just these constant thoughts over and over and over again because in trying to learn how to meditate on their own, they might have done that for a year or two with various YouTube videos and different things. And as the mind slowly started to awaken on its own, they didn't have the guidance that they needed and they didn't have the help. And now their mind is kind of stuck almost like on repeat. And they're just having constant thoughts, repetitive thoughts, like what we would probably call OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So it's important that everybody has teachers and guides to help them on this path. Meditation teacher should be able to guide you and help you evolve your practice. And you should be able to see that through learning with a teacher that you can practice what they're teaching you and those teachings are leading the mind to a better and better condition. If you're studying with a particular teacher and you're actively learning with them, you're implementing their teachings and you're not seeing results, then that means you probably need to find another teacher and somebody who's able to work with you more closely. But any teacher who's walked this path and is further along in their practice should be able to guide you encourage you and support you in developing a practice. And when you learn their teachings and you implement them, you should see the condition of your mind improving. That's one of the wonderful things about Gautama Buddha's teachings is they're not based on belief. Everything should be independently verifiable. So when you learn from a teacher and you implement teachings, you should be able to see the condition of your mind improving more and more and more as you practice those teachings. If you're not seeing that, then 
and you're making a dedicated effort to actually learn and you know that you're working with this teacher and they're working with you and you're trying to resolve any kind of misunderstandings that you have, if you are continuing to do that and you're applying good effort and it's just not working, then that's when you may decide that you wanna look for another teacher. But be sure that you put in the effort and the dedication to work with this teacher before you just step away because it might be something that you're misunderstanding or you may not be applying the teachings with enough effort and energy and time. So make sure you work with the person first and make sure you let them know that you aren't seeing benefit in what you're actually practicing. And maybe it's something that you're misunderstanding. So always accept responsibility for yourself that something maybe is going on that you're not understanding. And if you accept the responsibility and then seek the guidance from the teacher and they're able to help clarify for you, then maybe you can make progress from there. But be sure you do all of that before you just step away. And if you do choose to step away from a teacher, make sure you do that with a very good discussion and that they understand why you're stepping away so that you can maintain good relationships with the people that are working with you and helping you. And I think that oftentimes we maybe misunderstand things and by having an open discussion with a teacher, they may be able to help you to understand where you're misunderstanding things. But any teacher who's farther along on this path and is teaching meditation should be able to provide you teachings and guidance. And then when you practice that, you should be able to see the results for yourself. That's the difference between belief and someone who's seeking the truth is that you should be able to develop wisdom through the teachings, apply those and see the benefits of the condition of the mind improving. The third thing that I would like to share here is part of just kind of the basics is that there's four positions for meditation. There's seated, lying, standing and walking meditation. We use these different positions for different reasons. And as you talk with various teachers, they may share with you their experiences in using these different positions and why they use them, how they use them, and which situations do they employ the various positions. So let's just kind of discuss some of that right here on these basic positions. Typically when I teach meditation, I teach people in the seated position to get started because that's an obvious uh, way to get started. That's kind of the way that most people learn meditation. That's probably the way that most people end up doing meditation the most is through seated meditation, but there's other postures for other reasons as well. But seated meditation is usually where people start. You can actually sit on the floor, cross leg, you can put cushions under your rear to move your rear up and kind of have your legs on a downward angle to release the tension from your ankles and your knees and your hips. Uh, you can sit in a chair. There's lots of different sitting positions that you could employ, but what's important is that the lower body and the upper body and the hands and the arms are comfortable, that there's no pain in the body when you're actually meditating. There's no awards or certificates given for anybody who experiences pain during meditation and just kind of pushes through it. If you feel pain, that's the body's way of telling the mind something's wrong. There's pain in the knee. That's the, the body's way of telling the mind 
there's something wrong here, please fix it. Or if you feel pain in the hip, that's the body's way of telling the mind, there's something wrong here, please fix it. So if you experience pain during meditation, change your position, talk with your teacher, find a comfortable position where the body can be nice and comfortable. And the upper body should be supported with its own muscles. Because if you lean back in a chair or you lean back up against a wall or something like this while you're sitting and meditating on the floor, then the body becomes very luxurious, it becomes very comfortable, and the mind will have a tendency to turn off. It will become unattentive, unalert, and unaware. If we're going to be training the mind in this dedicated, independent, purposeful, active training session, then we need to keep the mind attentive, alert, and aware. So to do this, you use your upper body muscles to support your upper body with your own muscles rather than leaning back in a chair or leaning up against the wall because the mind's going to have a tendency to kind of turn off and become unalert and unaware, unattentive. So we want to maintain that alertness. We want to maintain that attentiveness and that awareness throughout the meditation so that we can actively train the mind to eliminate certain qualities or cultivate certain qualities in the mind. And the way to do that is to engage the upper body muscles to ensure that you're supporting your upper body with your own muscles and not leaning back up against any structure. Now, as you get older, 70s, 80s, 90s, and your body is frail, if you need to lean back in a wheelchair or something like this, then go ahead and do that. But just work to actively maintain your alertness of the mind. And while you're younger, hopefully you're learning and practicing these teachings so that by the time you're 80, 90 years old, you're already enlightened. So you're just kind of maintaining the quality of your mind at that point. There's not a whole lot of work that you need to really employ. You're just kind of maintaining your enlightened mind state. But if you do get to that point where you can no longer support yourself with your upper body weight, then sit back in your wheelchair and use a little bit of support. Or move to the lying position. The lying position is really great if you have pain in your upper body. Even nowadays, sometimes I'm doing certain things and I pull a certain muscle in my back or my hips or my waist and it's uncomfortable for me to sit. There's nothing that I can do either in a chair or on the floor to get the body comfortable and the body's completely in pain for various reasons. And that's where you might decide to employ lying meditation. Because by lying flat on the floor, or if you happen to be in a hospital bed or something like that, by laying, you actually are resting the muscles entirely. The, all the muscles in the body are completely relaxed and you can still actually meditate in the lying position. Now, one of the things with the lying position that you need to be aware of is the mind has a tendency to turn off, right? You may actually fall asleep. So the mind may become unaware, unattentive, or unalert. So in lying position, what I notice is usually within 15 or 20 minutes, my meditation is usually pretty much over at that point because the mind has become so relaxed. So still getting benefit, 
still getting in training in this dedicated session, but in the lying position, I tend to only use it when all the muscles or certain muscles in my body are so uncomfortable that I can't sit. That's one reason why I would use lying meditation position. The other situation that I use lying meditation position in is if I've been injured. There's been situations where I've been physically injured, like a motorbike accident or something like this, and my leg or my knee or my ankle is such that I can't even sit in a chair and I'm laying in a hospital bed hooked up to an IV. And in that situation, lying meditation position is the only option that I have. So I'll use lying meditation at that time. The third reason why I might use lying meditation position is if I've got this dedicated, consistent meditation practice where I tend to use seated meditation most often, and there's certain situations where you may be laying in bed and you may be interested to fall asleep. And what you might notice is as you're trying to fall asleep, the mind becomes a little bit busy thinking about different things. If you notice this and you've got your daily meditation practice already established while you're laying in bed, you can actually do a little meditation by focusing on the breath using breathing mindfulness meditation that we'll talk about today and it will actually help you to fall asleep. So while meditation is a active, dedicated, independent, purposeful training session, that you need to have a consistent daily practice of doing, you should do it that way. But as you're doing that and you've already got some really good training, you can actually use meditation to benefit you if you're noticing that you're in a strange setting or you're at a hotel or you're at a friend's house or even at your, at your own home and you're having trouble falling asleep, you can actually use laying meditation, focus on the breath, and what you'll notice five or 10 minutes into that is you'll doze off and go to sleep. So you can use this as a benefit to helping you induce sleep. But you don't want that to be your core training session because if all you're ever doing is training the mind for five or 10 minutes and falling asleep, then you don't have a daily consistent practice where you're cultivating certain qualities or eliminating certain qualities. So the third way of using lying meditation position is to actually help induce sleep if that's something that you need help with. So that could potentially be a way that you'd choose to use the lying position. Standing position can also be helpful if you can't sit. If you can't sit and you're noticing that you're having pain in certain parts of your body, but standing up would allow you to actually meditate what you'll notice is standing meditation will keep the mind more active. It will keep it more attentive, more alert than something like lying meditation. So if I am interested in maintaining the alertness and attentiveness, then maybe I'll do a standing meditation rather than a lying meditation if I can't do seated. Another way that I might use standing meditation is let's just say I'm at a bus stop or I'm in line somewhere and I'm there for 10, 15, 20 minutes waiting for something and I have nothing else going on, I might just kind of stand quietly, close my eyes and do some meditation for 5, 10, 15 minutes while I'm standing there waiting for the bus or waiting in line for something that has a particularly long line. It's a good way to 
use your time wisely and actually get some meditation going in a certain environment that you may otherwise not be meditating in. Because it's one thing to actually train the mind in a quiet home or at a temple or something like that, but to train the mind in an environment that's not standard for you, like at a bus stop or standing in line somewhere, there's a lot of benefit there because there's various sounds, various smells, various lighting. You can't control any of that stuff where when you're at home meditating, you can pretty much control and manage your entire environment and give the mind exactly what it needs and exactly what it wants. But if you can use standing meditation in certain environments where you don't have control over the sounds, over the smells, over the lighting, things like this, then you can actually work to train the mind to focus on the breath, attain this single-mindedness while you're actually standing in an environment that is not normal for you. So that's one way that you might choose to use standing meditation. And then walking meditation, we talked about this in a recent session on Wednesday where I talked about how you can use walking meditation in similar ways as I just described for standing. So if in seated meditation you're falling asleep or you're, have, you're dozing off or things like this, you can use walking meditation to maintain the alertness of the mind. So if you're noticing that you're kind of drowsy and, and seated or lying meditation is kind of the last thing that you would be thinking about because you're so sleepy, then walking meditation may be a way to kind of maintain the alertness of the mind and actually train the mind with walking meditation. Another way that you might use walking meditation is on the other side, is if your mind is too energetic and you feel like the last thing that you would think about is actually sitting down to meditate because the mind is too busy, too much chatter. And if you just sat down or lay or stand, it would be too busy and you wouldn't be able to focus on meditation. Then maybe you want to do some walking meditation to kind of empty the mind out, kind of exercise the body a little bit. And then if you choose, move to a seated or lying or standing afterwards. Or maybe you just do walking meditation as a standalone. So these four positions are four different positions that you can employ to keep the body comfortable but not luxurious so that you can actively train the mind. Now some of these suggestions that I just gave you for these four positions are ways that I've used these different four positions. But I only know that those things work in that way because that's how I used it. I practiced and used them in different situations to see how they worked but you've got to try this for yourself so that you can see it. Don't just take my word for it. If there's a certain situation that you're being confronted with in your meditation practice and you're noticing certain challenges, then use some of the suggestions that I just gave you moving into these different positions to address those challenges. But don't be afraid to actually use these positions in different ways that I didn't describe today. If you're noticing a certain challenge in your meditation practice and you decide to use one of these positions in order to confront that challenge and get over that challenge, then do it. Because your experience with these four positions and my experience with these four positions will most likely be very different. But if anything I share with you is beneficial and it's helpful, then use it. But if there's something that I'm sharing here that isn't beneficial, then don't use it. 
and come up with your own solution using these different four positions. One thing to keep in mind is that if you're used to meditating in the seated position all the time and you've never tried any of these other positions, you should absolutely try some of these other positions because you're not always going to be able to sit because we know that that's permanence. Everything is impermanent, including the human body. So if 100% of your meditation practice up to this point has been in the seated position, if you've got a really good, stable meditation practice going, you should try lying meditation occasionally. You should try standing meditation occasionally. You should try walking meditation occasionally to kind of mix it up a little bit, challenge the mind, kind of test it a bit and put it into various situations that aren't normal. Because what will happen is the mind will have a tendency to latch on and hold on to a particular meditation position that it really likes, that it craves, that it has a desire for, that it has this longing and strong eagerness to do seated meditation all the time. So even if your seated meditation is going really, really well and everything's cranking on all cylinders and you're getting a lot of benefit out of your seated position meditation, that's actually a good reason to actually try some of these other positions to challenge the mind and test the mind. So you can use these four positions in all of these different ways that I just described, and you may even come up with other reasons why you might choose to employ these different positions. But notice that Gautama Buddha gave us these four positions. He didn't give us just one because he understood impermanence. He understood that the human body is impermanent. So we're going to need these four different positions at different times in our life. So it's good to work with these different positions and try them so that you can train the mind and test the mind in these various ways using these different positions. And you'll notice pros and cons about all of these different positions. And then when you've got that wisdom, then when you need these different positions, you can kind of pull it out and use them at different times. But if you never try and if you never experience these different positions, then you wouldn't know when to use them or how to use them. So mix it up a bit and try these different positions at different times so that you'll have that experience and you'll have that wisdom. Max, do we have any questions? Yes. So Alan Rogerson asks, what's the best way to overcome torpor when establishing a regular meditation practice? Okay, so Topur is like sluggish mind. The Buddha gave us guidance about a sluggish mind. He also gave us guidance about an energetic mind when the mind's too excited. You'll see this in chapter three of the book that I shared when I talk about the seven factors of enlightenment. There are seven factors of enlightenment that the Buddha gave us that we need to practice all seven factors in order to work towards enlightenment. And these become more important as you get closer to the end of the path. But this guidance is really good for you, not only during meditation, but outside of meditation as well. So let me just kind of share that with you. What he talked about is he said, mindfulness or awareness of mind is good all the time. He said, we should always practice mindfulness, awareness of mind. But then he goes into the other six factors of enlightenment. He talked about investigation, energy, and joy. 
That's what we should practice when the mind is sluggish. When the mind is excited, we should practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Tranquility, and I've got all the description in here. If you read the book in chapter three, I've explained what each one of these factors are in detail. So that's what you can practice prior to meditation in daily life. If you're noticing that the mind is sluggish, if it's kind of bored, if it's slow, you can practice investigation, energy, and joy, okay? If it's too excited, you can practice concentration, tranquility, and equanimity. And then he says mindfulness, the seventh factor, we should practice all the time. It's always good. But during meditation specifically, if you're noticing that your mind is sluggish or slow, then I suggest that you change positions. If I'm in a seated position and I'm noticing that the mind is sluggish and slow, then I'll move to either standing or walking. If I'm in lying meditation and my goal isn't to rest the mind and fall asleep, then I'll move to standing or walking. That's the way to invigorate the mind through changing your position. Now, something else to keep in mind is if you're noticing that the mind is sleepy or sluggish during meditation is in some situations, if you're not getting enough rest and enough sleep, then just go to sleep. Just go to sleep. I've had plenty of situations in my practice where I've sat down to meditate and I've been 5, 10, 15 minutes into meditation and my mind just becomes super sleepy. And I realize that I just haven't been having a much of a sleep during that period of time for that week or two. And rather than push myself to meditate, I'll just go to sleep because at that particular moment, that's what the mind needed. It needed sleep. It needed rest. So I gave it what it needed rather than just pushing and pushing and pushing because there's always another day. There's always another day to meditate. This is a lifelong practice. So what's important is that you practice these seven factors of enlightenment so that you maintain an active mind and an alert mind and aware mind. Make sure that you're getting lots of rest and that you are resting for however many hours of sleep you need, whether that's six or eight or more hours. Make sure you've got those things as kind of prerequisites to developing your practice. But if you're just starting your practice and if you're noticing that every time you're meditating, you just keep being sleepy all the time, then you should look at your life and see if you're really getting enough sleep and a good quality sleep. And if you're not, then just go to sleep and get some sleep and to make sure that you're getting good quality sleep. But stay dedicated and committed to your meditation practice so that you're building out this more and more of a meditation practice. And what you'll notice is your quality of sleep will get better and you'll probably need less and less and less of it. There were certain times in my life where I would sleep 12, 14, even 16 hours a day because of what I was doing to myself in terms of my mind. And then the more and more that I learned these teachings and practiced meditation, the amount of sleep that I needed in a given day became less and less and less. So you kind of have to find the middle here. If you're noticing that you're not getting enough sleep, make sure you're getting enough sleep. Make sure you're dedicating time for your meditation practice. You should have 
multiple sessions throughout the day, definitely one, two, and if you can get three, then that's great, but you might not always be able to do that. Um, maybe it's only on the weekends or times off from work that you'll be able to get more meditation sessions. And as you meditate more frequently and more volume, you'll probably notice that you need less and less sleep, which essentially gives you more and more time for meditation. But while you're actually meditating, if you're noticing that you're becoming sleepy, just change to either standing or walking position. Thanks for that, David. And Alan also asked a follow-up. Um, it's actually not a follow-up, but it's a, a new question. He says, I often feel mentally exhausted after meditation. Is this applying too much will or effort? No, um, not exactly. As you're training the mind, as the mind becomes more and more awakened, it actually can become very sleepy or as you're talking about exhausting, right? Because it, it's an active training of the mind. If you went out and did a bunch of weightlifting and you worked out the body, the body is going to be very tired at the end. So if your mind is exhausted or tired at the end of meditation, it means you probably trained it you know, pretty actively and you've got a really good session in there. And that's why I usually will meditate in the morning for sure and in the evening for sure, because oftentimes what will happen is the morning session, you know, it's getting me ready for the day and kind of getting things really well established for the day. And then the evening session, it really leads me into a really good night's sleep where it's I'm very sleepy by the time that I'm done meditating at the end of the day. So if you're noticing that, then that's actually kind of one of the benefits of training the mind is that it's going to become sleepy. It's going to become exhausted. And that just shows that you're actively training it and you'll be able to easily fall asleep. This is one of the reasons why some people will say, I don't like to meditate. My son does this sometimes. He's seven and a half years old. And he says, Daddy, every time I meditate, it just makes me sleepy. And this is because he's craving the excited feelings. He's a, a craving that excitement. So when he meditates and it calms him down and it brings his mind down to a calm place, he doesn't like that. That doesn't feel normal for him. It's not what he would desire. He desires that exciting, active mental state. So I know that him meditating is helpful and him calming down is beneficial. And he sees that over time as well. But every once in a while, he talks about how it makes him very sleepy or what you're describing, Alan, as kind of exhausted. So that's a normal aspect of meditation. And I don't necessarily think you're pushing yourself too hard. If you're doing this in the morning and you're noticing that you're becoming very exhausted and it's not giving you the energy you need for the day, then maybe you wanna back off just a little bit and maybe use the evening time for a more intensive session where you can actually sleep afterwards. But that's actually one of the things that you'll notice is the more you train the mind, it will become very sleepy. And this was common during the lifetime of the Buddha that as he would talk and teach various people, they would actually fall asleep. Now today, if somebody fell asleep in class, we would probably consider that rude or we would say that the person isn't attentive or whatever. But as the mind is becoming liberated, it's being freed of this stress, it's being freed of this attachment, 
this ignorance or delusion, this unknowing of true reality is being actively eliminated from the mind through gaining wisdom of these teachings, oftentimes people get very sleepy uh, as part of just learning the teachings or reading the teachings in a book. Uh, in Thailand, it's kind of common for people to listen to the Buddhist teachings as a way to help them fall asleep at nighttime. So this is kind of common. It's, it wouldn't concern me, but you may want to try to decide where's the best time for you to actually create that real active, engaged meditation session where the mind becomes exhausted. Because if you're doing it in the morning prior to doing a lot of work, it may cause complications to your daily life. So you may want to kind of throttle it back a little bit and use your real active sessions when the mind becomes exhaustive at a time where you can actually rest when the meditation is finished. Okay, so we have a question from uh, a different Alan on Facebook. And Alan Jew, Alan asks, is it normal if we feel numbness on our feet after about 30 minutes of sitting meditation? You'll experience different sensations in the body as part of meditating. If you're feeling numbness in the feet, this can be from circulation that's not circulating in the lower body. If you're doing seated meditation in your cross leg, it could be from a nerve pinching. So I would suggest adjusting your body positioning so that you don't experience the numbness in your feet. While it's not normal, it's not something that's desirable, it's not abnormal either. It happens and it's part of the body not being in a comfortable position. So if it is happening, that's normal, but it shouldn't be happening. You should take steps to resolve that by maybe putting cushions under your rear to open up your hips a little bit so your legs are going on a downward direction, opening up your knees a little bit to allow the circulation in the nerves to get more fluid throughout the lower body during meditation. You can also try standing meditation, laying meditation, and walking meditation as well. But this shouldn't be happening, but it's normal for somebody who, whose body isn't getting the fluids that they need throughout the lower body. So definitely work to find a solution to that by changing the position of the hips, the knees, and the ankles if you're doing seated meditation. Question from Chris on Zoom. Chris asks, can meditation ever become a craving issue? Can craving meditation ever become a problem or an addiction or in any way negative? Every single thing in life can become a craving. This is something that we talked about, I think on Wednesday, there was a lot of questions around craving. So somebody asked me, is chanting a craving or an attachment? Is writing in a journal an attachment or craving? Every single thing in life, it can either be a craving or not. So if your mind is attached to meditating and it expects meditating, if it has a longing, a strong eagerness, this craving, this attachment, this desire to meditate, then yeah, the mind's going to be discontent because it's not going to be able to meditate all the time. Everything in life can potentially be a craving or a desire or an attachment. It's how the mind relates to it. Let me give you an example. I have meditated for many, many years. And last year, I got into a motorbike accident in June. 
And when I got into a motorbike accident, I had cracked a rib and a couple of other problems in my body. And while I was making attempts to meditate, I really couldn't, especially for the first week and a half, because just breathing into my lungs, even just a little bit, it was painful to my ribs. If I was attached, if I was craving, if I had a desire for meditation, then during that time, my mind would have been discontent. It would have been frustrated. It would have been irritated that I couldn't meditate. But during that time, I recognized that I had had this accident, the body's impermanent, and I can't meditate every single day of my life, even if that's the goal that I set for myself, it's not going to be possible. So during that week and a half, I just recognized that my body was healing. I focused on eating good food, drinking good food, resting, recovering, doing what I needed to do to recover the body. And after about a week and a half, I started slowly being able to get into meditation again. And even at that point, I still couldn't chant because I couldn't get air into my lungs enough to chant, but I could slowly start meditating after about a week and a half. And then by about the third week mark, I could start chanting again. Whereas if I was attached to chanting or I was attached to meditation, if I was craving it, the mind would be discontent. That's how you can determine whether something is an attachment or not, whether it's a craving or not, whether it's a desire or not. Because anytime there is craving, desire, attachment, longing, grasping, a strong eagerness, the mind's always going to be discontent. So wherever you see discontentedness of mind, then you know that you have attachment. You know you have craving. You know you have a desire. So yes, meditation can be a craving, desire, or attachment, but it doesn't need to be. It's how you train your mind to either be attached or not. Chanting can be an attachment or not. Children, relationships, jobs, possessions, income, everything in the world can be a craving or an attachment, but it's how you train the mind to not allow it to be a craving or an attachment. So there's no such thing as a good attachment. There's no such thing as a good craving. There's no such thing. Anytime there's craving, desire, attachment, grasping, holding, longing, a strong eagerness in the mind, it will always, always, always lead to discontentedness. So that's why in order to attain enlightenment, you need to eliminate 100% of all craving, desire, attachment, longing, grasping, strong eagerness in the mind. So Mertza on Facebook asks, is there any correlation between our diet and the quality of our meditation? To some degree, yes, because if the body has ingested too much food and it's working too hard, it's going to be challenged to meditate. This is one of the reasons why Gautama Buddha suggested and taught to only have one meal per day. And some people think that the food during his time was probably more nutritionist. Um, and people could get away with one meal a day, but there's actually practitioners who do eat just one meal a day. A lot of people will eat two meals a day nowadays um, that are practicing these teachings. And what you'll notice is that when the mind becomes more and more enlightened, 
it's working more optimally. So you actually need less food, just like you need less sleep. So the quantity of food has a direct impact of whether you can actually meditate well and get a lot of benefit out of meditation and when you choose to actually eat. So you shouldn't meditate on a full stomach. You should meditate kind of on a somewhat empty stomach. You're going to get more benefit that way. And then the types of food that you choose, of course, if you're eating nutritionist food, healthy food, you're putting water and fruit juices and wholesome vegetables and wholesome food into your body, then your body is going to be more comfortable. So therefore, you're going to be able to access the mind and train the mind more readily. So in terms of food and intake, you want to look at the quality that you're putting in, make sure you have good quality food that's going in to maintain the healthy body. And you want to also look at the time and the quantity of food that you're eating. So make sure you're eating after meditation or you've had time to actually digest before you actually attempt to meditate. Because if you're trying to train the mind actively with an independent session of meditation and your body's trying to digest at the same time, you're kind of struggling for the same resources here. So eat, don't eat too much, let your body digest and then meditate when your body has already digested the food and then put good quality food into your body. A question from Amina on Facebook. Amina asks, in the book, we learn to not control the breath. We should settle in and observe or follow the breath. It's pace and it's depth and it's flowing naturally. Is there a parallel that we can draw from the teachings that just as we should not try to force the breath and meditation, we should not try to force factors outside of ourselves in our daily lives and yes. therefore learn to be complete in each moment? Perfect, Amina. Yes, you're thinking about that exactly the right way is just like you shouldn't try to force or control your breath, you shouldn't try to force or control anything in life because you can't. You can't control anything other than training your own mind and controlling your own mind. That's the only thing that you can control. And you can't force that either. So we shouldn't force our children. We shouldn't force or try to control our partners. We shouldn't try to force or control our business relationships, our personal relationships, anything in life, if we're trying to force or control it, then it's going to result in something unwholesome. And if we're trying to force something or we're trying to control it, that kind of shows that there's attachment right there because attachment is this mental longing with a strong eagerness. If I have a strong eagerness for something, I'm going to try to force it. I'm going to try to control it. But if I don't have this longing and this strong eagerness, I just have an interest. I have a goal. I have an objective. And I'm slowly, gradually working to attain that in daily life. Then I'm not going to try to force it or control it. Because if anyone's ever tried to force you or control you, you know the first thing you do is dig your heels in and you resist it. So why would we ever try to control or force anything? Because when we do... The people are just going to dig their heels in and resist what we have to say or what we're trying to influence anyway. So that's perfect that you're seeing that parallel, Amina. Just like we shouldn't control or force our breath, we shouldn't try to force or control anything in life, anything at all, because you'll have better results that way. Yeah, really 
valuable stuff. Um, as a follow-up for myself, is it fair to say that the only thing we can really control is the choice we make in the present moment? Yes, exactly. You can only control your own mind. And as you're saying, Max, because you can control your own mind, you can control your own decisions. Sometimes people think that there's kind of like this predestiny or life is already kind of predetermined for us and we can't do anything about it. We're just kind of subservient to this supreme being that is controlling everything in the world. This is false. This is delusion. This is ignorance. This is unknowing of true reality. Whether you believe in this supreme being's existence or not, there's nothing controlling us. We have 100% free will to make our own personal choices. And it's through those own personal choices of us training the mind, controlling the mind, we have free will to make any decisions that we would like in this life. And all of those decisions lead to wholesome results if we're making good, wholesome decisions. And we have 100% ability to do that. That's what made Gautama Buddha's teachings so revolutionary at his time because all the people around him had been trained and believed that they had to pay money to these Brahmin priests. And by paying them money to pray on their behalf, they just went back to the farm and their life either got good or bad based on how much money they gave to the priest. Well, of course, that's corruption and it didn't work. When the Buddha came in and said, hold on a second, you guys have 100% ability to influence the quality of your mind and influence the quality of your life through your own personal choices, this was revolutionary to them. And what you'll notice is the more you learn and practice these teachings, training your mind with meditation, you'll be able to control your mind and thus you'll be able to control your decisions. You can make very good decisions that better influence the outcome and you'll have much better success that way than if we just kind of throw up our hands and say, oh, life's already predetermined. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. There's this supreme being controlling every little aspect of life. We're just a robot and we just have to go through life and accept whatever happens to us happens to us. No, that's not correct. We can learn, we can gain wisdom, we can train the mind, we can control the mind, and therefore we can make very good decisions which have good outcomes, good wholesome results. That's what makes these teachings so, so powerful. And then you can actually see the results of those decisions as well. Okay, we have a couple more, but I have a feeling they're going to be answered in the next section. So I suggest we push on and maybe come back to those if we if they're still open okay let's continue on and see what else we explore and, and cover and if i don't answer those max then just make sure you ask those as we get to them okay let's talk about the different types of meditation there's four main types of meditation there's only two that every single person needs to learn in order to attain enlightenment I don't know how many meditations are in the world. There's umpteen number of meditations that have been developed over the time. But there's only three main ones that the Buddha talks about and kind of a fourth one as well in his teachings. 
That's all he ever teaches in his teachings. And that's what I teach as well, because that's what leads to enlightenment. All these other meditation techniques that are out there, it's not what the Buddha actually taught. And if you spend a lot of time learning these countless iterations of meditation, then you're not focusing your time on actually training the mind and doing the work to improve the condition of the mind. So I only suggest that you learn two main styles of meditation. That's breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. The other two that we're gonna talk about today are things that you may need at certain times and that's where a teacher comes into play that through you having a relationship with a teacher, we can actually recommend one of these other specialized types of meditations depending on what's going on with your mind. But I know that every single person is going to need these first two types. The first one is breathing mindfulness meditation. This is the one where we're training the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. We're training the mind to let go because this is the primary problem that the Buddha discovered with the mind is that the mind has this tendency to hold on. It grasps. It has this longing, this strong eagerness to hold on to things. This is what causes discontentness of mind. This is why you're experiencing anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, boredom, loneliness, shyness, guilt, shame, fears, all of these discontent emotions that you're experiencing, all these feelings are because the mind has this craving, desire, attachment, this grasping, this longing, this strong eagerness. So breathing mindfulness meditation is training the mind to let go. Essentially, it's training the mind to accept impermanence to recognize impermanence and accept it. I've gone through breathing mindfulness meditation in multiple sessions on Wednesdays and training you guys what breathing mindfulness meditation is and how to use it. If you haven't been involved in any of those trainings, I have them saved in podcasts. I also have them saved on our YouTube channel. You can go back and there's been multiple sessions where I've trained and taught this particular style of meditation and I'll be training more. Every Wednesday, we rotate between breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and chanting. And we rotate those every three weeks, essentially. So this is the foundation of practice. This is the number one most important meditation that you need to establish as your solid stand, right? The pot without a stand is easy to tip over. This is your stand, which is going to help the mind become stable and steady, okay? We're working to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment, and we're also training the mind to come into the present moment and attain singleness of mind or single-mindedness, okay? Because in breathing mindfulness meditation, when the mind goes to the past, we bring it to the breath. The breath is the present moment. When the mind goes to the future, we bring the mind to the breath and we train the mind to be in the present moment. When there's thoughts, ideas, and perceptions that come into the mind, we let those go and we train the mind to focus on the breath because a mind that is focused on the present moment is going to have clarity. It's going to have concentration. It's going to have focus. 
And when you have single-mindedness, you can then make individual decisions one by one that is going to lead to good results. Because if you've got this wisdom of the Eightfold Path and all the rest of the Buddhist teachings, and you've developed single-mindedness, then you're making really good, wholesome decisions one by one by one. But if your mind's cluttered, and it's got this monkey mind that just keeps bouncing around and jumping around all the time, it's got all this erroneous information, and you're trying to make all these decisions, and you're thinking about the past, you're thinking about the future, you're not quite sure what to do, the mind's kind of scrambled and cluttered, you're not going to make good decisions. It's understandable that you've made bad decisions in your life that have led to bad outcomes. That's understandable because you haven't had good training of the mind. But if you use breathing mindfulness meditation to eliminate this craving, this grasping, this longing, this strong eagerness, and you ease that away, and you develop this single-mindedness where the mind's in the present moment, now you can just make one decision after the next, after the next, in the present moment, that leads to good, wholesome results. So this is the foundation of your meditation practice. Breathing mindfulness meditation, training the mind to let go or cut off the thoughts and bringing the mind to the breath. So we're not gonna get into the details of how to perform this one today because we've done that in previous talks that you can reference through our podcast and YouTube videos. The second style of meditation that everybody needs is loving kindness meditation. This meditation is training the mind to eliminate hatred, anger, ill will, frustration, irritation, annoyance, all of those negative emotions by cultivating loving kindness for all beings. What loving kindness is, is active goodwill. Active goodwill without judgment. By training the mind in this way to cultivate this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, we're eliminating, slowly reducing, but ultimately eliminating this poison of hatred, anger, or ill will. Because remember, when I started off the talk, I described the three poisons, craving, anger, and ignorance, or greed, hatred, and delusion, or unknowing of true reality. So those three poisons, these two meditations are addressing the first two, the craving and anger, or the greed and hatred. It's the same thing. Those two poisons are being addressed with these meditations and some other practices as well. And then the third one is through the wisdom, through learning Gautama Buddha's teachings and having wisdom. So loving kindness meditation is the second meditation that everyone needs because we're all born with these three poisons. You haven't done anything wrong. The fact that you're angry or you have frustration or irritation or sadness or guilt or shame, you haven't done anything wrong. Your mind is your mind. This is what you were born into the world with. Everybody's born into the world with these same three poisons. But now that you're learning these teachings and you practice these teachings, you have the ability to eliminate these poisons. And these two particular meditations are what everybody needs. And that's how we know everybody needs these meditations because we're all born with these three poisons. And those are the ways to eliminate them is using these two meditations and other teachings as well. 
If you reference chapter eight, either in the book or the talks that I've done through podcast and YouTube, you'll see where I talk about the three poisons and specifically talk about the antidotes to the three poisons because these meditations are part of the solution, but they're not the entire solution. That's why you can't meditate your way to enlightenment. These are part of the solution, but they're not 100% of the solution. But these two are the core meditations that every single person needs to learn in order to attain enlightenment. With breathing mindfulness meditation being the foundation, the number one priority, and then adding on to that, the loving kindness meditation. Now let's get into two meditations that I haven't talked about before, but I have them in the book. I'm going to talk about them and then I'm going to explain how to do them as well, since I haven't explored these in an actual talk before. The first one is meditation to eliminate sexual cravings. Okay. This is a kind of optional or specialized meditation that not everybody needs because if you're a person who has one partner and you're loyal to that partner and you just have kind of a, a normal active sex life with that one partner, you're probably never going to need this meditation. You're never probably going to need it. But if you find yourself with two, three, four, five partners and you're having trouble being loyal to just one, or if you find yourself watching pornography and taking pleasure in seeing pornographic material, this is a particular meditation that can help you reduce that sexual craving and bring it down to kind of more of a middle. If you're finding yourself that you're masturbating constantly, 5, 10, 15, 20 times a day, this is a strong sexual craving in this particular meditation, I'm going to cover it in detail after this, will bring that sexual craving down to the middle and you'll need to use this particular meditation to do that. So that's one way that you can use this meditation. The second way that you can use this meditation is as you're getting closer and closer to enlightenment, as you get to the third and fourth stage of enlightenment, you actually need to eliminate 100% of sensual desires. This is one of the fetters. This is the fourth fetter, sensual desire. It's a craving that the mind experiences that needs to be eliminated in order to get to that third and fourth stage of enlightenment. You can actually attain the first and second stage of enlightenment while still having sexual contact. And not everybody is going to choose to eliminate sexual contact and go to the third or fourth stage of enlightenment. And if you do choose to do that, you may not choose that right now. So you may not need this particular meditation at this particular time, but if some point in your life, you're having trouble to eliminate sexual craving from your mind, from your life, this is the particular meditation to do that. Whether it's now that you have too many partners, because that's gonna cause problems if you have three, four, five partners at one time. It's going to cause problems. So you need to bring that down to one. Or if you're watching pornography and that craving is causing discontentness, or if you're masturbating consistently and that's causing discontentness of mind, this particular meditation will bring that down to a more kind of a moderate sexual life. 
or if you are working through the stages of enlightenment, you're at the first, second stage of enlightenment, and you want to eliminate this sexual craving from the mind to get to the third or fourth stage, you could use this particular meditation to do that. So this would be two different ways that you can use this, but not everybody's going to need it. Some people can eliminate sexual cravings without any meditation whatsoever. And if you're doing that or you're able to do that or you choose to do that at some point in your life, then great. You don't need this particular meditation. The fourth meditation that I share is called Meditation to Realize Non-Self. Non-Self is a teaching that I cover in chapter four, the chapter about the Four Noble Truths. Just prior to the Four Noble Truths, I introduce the three universal truths. And the third truth is about non-self. This is the teaching that there is no permanent self. There is no you. There is no I. There is no me. Essentially, we carry this image in our mind that we think there's a permanent self. We think that there's a never-changing self in the mind. And because of that, we form ego and self-image, self-identity around this self, and it causes problems because now we're trying to defend the self. It's only the self that becomes discontent. If somebody says something to you negatively, if there's a self, you're going to get hurt because of the self-identity, the self-image. The self is still there. When somebody says something derogatory, you're going to get frustrated or angry because there's a self there. But if you eliminate the self and somebody says something negative, it doesn't bother you because there's nothing there. There is no self. There is no I. There is no me. Yes, there's a physical body here and there's a consciousness or there's a mind, but in the mind, in the unenlightened state, we hold this concept of a self and because of that, we cause our own discontentedness. We get upset when somebody says something we don't like. Or if we lose our job, our ego is affected and we start feeling discontent. We feel sad. We feel somebody says something to us. We feel belittled, right? But when you eradicate this self, when you eliminate this self, when you eliminate this ego and you realize there's nothing there, that there is no permanent self, then the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The way that you know that there is no self is when you look at yourself when you were a child or a teenager or early adulthood, you look at yourself at different ways than you do right now. The person who you are now is different than you were 10, 15, 20 years ago, or even five years ago, or even two years ago. You're a different person than you are right now than you were back then. But in the mind, you think that there's this permanent self. You're holding on, you're grasping, you're craving, you have this strong eagerness to hold on to a self, a self-identity, a self-image. And because the mind is holding on to this, this is why the mind becomes discontent. One of the reasons why it becomes discontent, because it's one of the attachments that the mind's holding on to. So there's lots of things that you need to learn and practice in order to eliminate this self, but this particular meditation can help you do that. I don't ever suggest that you do this meditation on your own and without guidance from a teacher, 
Because if you just sat down and you tried to do this meditation right now, it's going to have very little effect because you haven't learned all the other teachings and you're not implementing this meditation at the appropriate time. There's a certain time, an appropriate time where you need to start focusing on eradicating the self. And just sitting down and doing this meditation that I'm going to teach you today isn't going to instantly eradicate the self. You need to do a lot more work before you actually get to this. This is something that you're going to focus on much closer when you get closer to the four stages of enlightenment. Typically, when I will introduce this with students is when I see that they're going through the jhanas. There's something called four jhanas or four meditative states that one will go through prior to the four stages of enlightenment. And when you start reaching these four jhanas, then I know that now's the time to introduce this particular meditation to you. So if you learn what I teach you today about this meditation to realize non-self and you just try to do it, it's not going to have any effect because it's not the right time to do it. This is why you need teacher and guides to help you and walk along the path so that you're implementing the right tools at the right time. It's just like building a house. You're building this unshakable mind. You need to use the right tools at the right time. When it's time to build a house, you don't put the shingles on. You don't put the roof on right away. First, you have to level out the ground. You have to survey the ground. You have to dig holes. You have to put footings in. You have to lay the foundation. You have to build up the house piece by piece by piece. And then at the end, you put the roof on, right? So that's what this is, is that you have to do it at the right time. So I'm going to introduce it to you and share it with you today. But I don't suggest anybody actually go out and actually start doing this until you are at the right point in your practice that it's actually going to benefit you. Right now, it's probably not going to benefit you to do this unless you're further along in the jhanas and you're ready to actually start implementing this meditation to further help you realize non-self. And even before you get to this meditation of non-self, there's things that you need to learn that lead into this practice of realizing non-self through meditation. So I would never just have you start doing this right off. You need to learn a bunch of other things before you even get to this point where you can actually start meditating to realize non-self. Any questions on any of this? So we have a question from Japjit Singh and he asks, he's experiencing a sensation on the nose of his bridge between his eyes. Is this normal whilst meditating? He says it feels like some kind of weight on his nose bridge. It's like something is opening. Yeah, this is common. Uh, it happens. Uh, you're going to experience all kinds of different sensations in the body. What this one could be, I'd have to talk to you more, but what it could be is your third eye opening up. And your third eye is kind of an inward looking eye that kind of looks more inwardly at the mind. It could be that, or it could just be some sensation in the body. What you're going to notice is the more that you meditate and the mind awakens more and more, things are going to start shifting around in the mind. There's going to be various sensations in the body. The mind produces all kinds of things, various sensations, various feelings. You might see various lights. You might feel your head is expanding. You might feel pressure in the skull. You might feel pressure in the head. 
all of this stuff is temporary and there's never a thing where it's like, okay, this happened, so that means this, or that happened, so it means this. All of these things are just kind of the miscellaneous sensations that the mind is going to produce in the body, and you just can't be attached to it. You can't hold on to it. Don't try to search for any particular meaning, like what does this mean? What does this mean? I've got to get the meaning for what does this mean? If you hold on to that, that's craving, that's longing, that's a strong eagerness. It's just going to cause discontentness in the mind. Just recognize that the mind is going to produce all this erroneous and miscellaneous sensations in the body. Don't get attached to them and just keep on going. If you're feeling pressure in the head, pressure in the skull, if you're feeling sensations in the body, just don't attach to it. Just keep on moving. Keep on staying focused on the goal and just know that all of these things are impermanent. They will come and they will go. They will arise and then they will cease. Don't fixate the mind on it. Stay focused on your meditation practice. Stay focused on the breath and just keep going towards the goal, which is full liberation full enlightenment, complete enlightenment as an otter hunt. That's the goal. And just stay focused on that. We have no more questions this time. Okay. So now we're going to move into the next slide. And just for anybody who's a little bit sensitive, I'll just let you know that this next slide is a little bit graphic because we're going to be talking about this meditation of eliminating sexual craving. And the way that the Buddha suggested that we do that is he suggested that we develop the perception of unattractiveness of the body. And the way that we do that is meditate with the image of a dead body, a dissected body, or even some people will meditate at a temple with the actual corpse itself. So I'm gonna change the slide here, but just realize that there's a dissected body that we're going to be looking at here. So here, this is the Buddha's words where he says, the perception of unattractiveness should be developed to abandon lust. Lust here is craving, central desire, okay? So the way that we do this is we actually meditate on a corpse of a body. That's how we develop the unattractiveness of the body. So this is a meditation where you get a picture and there's plenty online now that you can download over the internet. In the old days before the internet existed, you could go around in Thailand and you would actually see vendors selling pictures of dissected bodies. And you could actually get these laminated. You put them in front of you and you meditate looking and staring at these pictures with your eyes open. So you would still do breathing mindfulness meditation the way that I've taught in the past, but rather than closing the eyes and just focusing on the breath, you leave the eyes open and you focus on the breath and you stare at this body until you develop unattractiveness of the body. This is how you bring that sexual craving down to more of a moderate feeling or ultimately eliminate it 100%. Because what the Buddha talked about in his teachings is the reason why we have sexual craving is because we don't have the proper perception of the actual body. What we see when we see a body is we see the beautiful hair, we see the beautiful skin, we see the facial structure. Someone might wear perfume, they might have clothing on, 
Some people, you know, males and females wear different earrings, different makeup. We do all these things to the body in order for it to appear beautiful and attractive. And we do that to attract a mate, right? We clean our body, we clean our eyes, we clip our fingernails, we do all of these different things, lots of time to maintain the body's attractiveness. But what the Buddha was explaining was if we truly understood the real reality, right? If we eliminate this delusion or this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality of what the human body really is, then we can develop this perception of unattractiveness. Because if you think about the human body, it's somewhat disgusting, right? Sure, there's lots of beautiful people in the world, but the human body by itself is quite disgusting, right? We urinate, we defecate, we have pus, we have sweat, we have all this stuff coming out of our nose, mucus, we cough up stuff. We, you know, there's a certain amount of disgustingness about the body. Now, sure, we train our mind to look at the attractive side. And that's why someone who's trained their mind to look at the attractiveness of the body, their mind is going to pull stronger and stronger and stronger in that direction and have strong sexual cravings. Well, the way to bring that to the middle or ultimately eliminate it is to train the mind on the true reality of the body, awakening the mind to the true reality. And the true reality is the body is actually quite disgusting. If we cut open the body or if somebody was possible to rip off their skin and they walked over to you and tried to hug you, you might actually run if you were scared, right? Because you're not used to seeing muscle tissue and organs and fluid and bone structure and all of this stuff that's part of the human body, the nerves, the, 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 the blood, all of this stuff. Some people, when they see blood, they faint, right? Because they're not used to seeing it. So the way to train the mind to eliminate this attractiveness, this sexual craving, is to develop the perception of unattractiveness. And by meditating, looking at a corpse in a picture, it's a way to do that. And it takes many, many sessions to be able to train the mind in that way. And here in Thailand, they actually cremate bodies and they will leave bodies in a temple for about three days before they actually cremate it. So there are some people who will actually meditate in the presence of an actual corpse because they can look at the actual corpse and develop an attractiveness but then in certain situations, there may even be a certain odor or smell associated with that, which helps to bring the sensual desire down even further. So this isn't a meditation that everybody needs to run out and go do. This isn't even a meditation that everybody needs to do. This is just one of those specialized meditations that if you're having challenges with sexual craving, this is one that you could employ. And the way you would do it is exactly like breathing mindfulness meditation, except you would open your eyes and you would stare at this image and develop unattractiveness of the body to abandon this sexual craving. So the next meditation and the last one that you would ever really potentially need, and not everybody needs this meditation, but it's there that I work with students and I put it in the book 
so that as I'm working with students and I say, okay, you're ready for this, then they have the reference in the book to actually look at. Once I see that a student's working through the jhanas and it's time for them to develop non-self, there's a lot of other teachings that I will share with them in order to help them start learning about non-self. But at a certain time, it's going to potentially make sense that they start meditating to realize non-self. And the way that I suggest that you do that is use these affirmations. There's five affirmations. So just like I've taught loving kindness meditation in the past, where you do breathing mindfulness meditation first, and then move into affirmations with loving kindness meditation, instead of doing loving kindness meditation, you would do these affirmations instead. And what the Buddha's words are here is he says, the perception of impermanence should be developed to eradicate the conceit, I am, right? Like, I am here. This is mine. This is my daughter, my son, my computer, my house, my car. We use all of these words that we tend to hold on to things. This is my wife, my husband, my boyfriend, my girlfriend. And when we think that way in the mind, it can become jealous very easy. It can become offended very easy. It can become discontent very easily because everything's mine and we're holding on to it very tightly. We don't want to let go. So prior to realizing non-self, there's a lot of other work that you need to do, but eventually you will get to the point where you may need this meditation and that's where I would potentially recommend it for you. And what you would do is you would do your breathing mindfulness meditation and then in the mind, you would repeat these affirmations. I am not the body. I am not the body. And you do it on the out breath. I am not the body. And in the mind, you're thinking, I am not the body. I am not the body, right? This body is not you. You are not this body. You are not the mind. I am not the mind. That's not who you are, right? The mind is the mind. It's separate. There's thoughts, there's feelings that come into the mind, but that's not you. That's not who you are. You are not the frustration. You are not the anger. You're not the irritation. You're not what the mind develops. All of the thoughts and feelings that arise in the mind, that's not who you are. So you repeat this affirmation, I am not the mind, repeatedly over in the mind. And then you repeat the next one, there is no self. And this is why you need some training before you get here. All of this stuff isn't going to make sense to you if you just try to do it right now. You need a bunch of training to understand what this means when you say in the mind, there is no self. And then I do not exist. You need to understand what that means. Right now, you're probably thinking, what? I exist? I'm like right here. Like, what do you mean I don't exist? But if you've done all the prior training that I would give you prior to this, you would understand what it means when you say, I do not exist. And then you sum this up with, I am not the body. I am not the mind. There is no self. I do not exist. And by repeating this 
over and over and over and over and over again in meditation over multiple sessions and having had the prior training, you start to eradicate this concept of a permanent self in the mind. And through that previous training in this meditation, you start to slowly, gradually realize non-self. In order to get to the very first stage of enlightenment, you will have had to eliminate three of the fetters. The first fetter is what we call personal existence view, eradicating the self. That's the first fetter. So even to get to the very first stage of enlightenment, you will have had to eradicate the self and realize non-self. But you have a lot of other work before you get there, right? You have to understand the three universal truths, the four noble truths. You have to learn and practice the Eightfold Path, the five precepts, the three poisons. You need to develop a breathing mindfulness meditation practice, a loving kindness meditation practice. You need to work on a lot of other things before you actually get to this. So this is kind of like an, a more advanced meditation practice that you're only going to do with the encouragement, support, and guidance of a teacher. So there's no need for you to run off and go do this right now because you're not going to get any benefit from it. Okay, so this is how we would use this meditation and it's going to slowly start to erode this concept that you're holding in the mind that there's somehow a permanent self here. There is no permanent self. It's just a physical body and a mind or consciousness that have come together for this existence. There is no you. You can't point to you. You can point to the shirt. You can point to the skin. You can point to the bones. You can point to the organs, but there is no you in there, right? If you want to learn more about non-self, look in chapter four. I cover it there. And if you have questions about it, post those into the Facebook group or reach out to me privately and we can discuss non-self more because this is important for you to even get to the first stage of enlightenment. You're going to need to eradicate the self. Any questions on this one? Alan Rogerson asks, how do we know if we are entering a jhana state? I usually don't tell people how you know because uh, I'm not interested in you knowing because the way that I know that you're entering into jhana is based on certain things that you say and certain things that you talk about with your meditation. I can tell when you're in a jhana. But if I tell you that now, it kind of pre-programs you and makes you aware of what that is. And then you maybe long for it or grasp for it. So I rather not tell you how to identify when you're in a jhana. And I would rather you share with me what's going on in your meditation practice and what you're experiencing. And from that description, I will be able to know if you're in one of the jhanas or not. So it's better that way. If I tell it to you, then you'll probably long and crave or maybe even use language that makes you think that you're in a jhana. It's better to, to actually not know. The Buddha did give some description of what the jhanas are. If you look in chapter four, he, I provided that information, or actually not chapter four, uh, in chapter five on the Eightfold Path, I put in there the Buddha's words of his descriptions of the jhanas, but I prefer not to share what those are 
because I rather the students just tell me what they're experiencing in meditation. And then when I hear certain things, I'll know that you're in certain jhanas and I'll be able to further help you along based on where you're at. But I, that wouldn't be a valid way to know whether you're in the proper jhana or not if I tell you how I know that or, or what to expect. So it's better to just continue to focus on the 10 fetters, eliminating the 10 fetters, and continue to work on developing your meditation practice, and then be in touch with a teacher and share what your experiences are so that I can continue to help you to progress in your practice. Is jhana something that can only happen during a dedicated meditation, or is it also something that can happen as we go about our daily life? You notice it during meditation, mostly. That's when you notice it. Uh, it's a meditative state, but if you've attained one of those jhanas, one of the four jhanas, you will notice the benefits in your life. So it becomes most noticeable during meditation, but there are certain qualities of the jhanas that show up in daily life as well. So if your mind is attained one of the four jhanas, while you're meditating, there's certain things that you, I'll say, okay, tell me what your meditation is like. Tell me what you're experiencing. And then based on your description, I will know what jhana you're in, if you're in a jhana. And then also there are certain things outside of meditation that you will experience as well as part of being in these jhanas. And it's all based on the quality of the mind and what's going on with the mind. So if I've attained a certain jhana, say I'm in the third jhana, I will experience that in meditation, but I'm also in that jhana at other times as well. Like, so when I'm not in meditation, I'm still experiencing the results or benefits of that jhana outside of meditation. Got it. And is that something that tends to have a kind of half-life? So it will hang around for a bit and then fade? Or is it, because well, it's, it's not permanent, of course, but is it something that like, once that's attained, then the capacity for it to come back is then always there? The jhanas are, are definitely temporary. They're, they're not permanent. They're impermanent. They're not meant to be permanent. You're going to be interested to move through those jhanas. In terms of coming back, if you're in a particular jhana, you're going to experience the benefits of that jhana, and it's, it's somewhat unstable. You know, once you attain the various stages of enlightenment, especially the last stage, the mind is firmly rooted in that last stage of enlightenment. And that's the Buddha talked about an unshakable mind. He talked about it as an unshakable liberation of the mind, that final stage of enlightenment. But these other stages of enlightenment and these four stages of jhanas, they're somewhat shaky. And that's why I don't even suggest for people to try to figure out what jhana you're in. Sometimes people sit around and they work so hard to try to figure out what jhana they're in and what jhana they're going to and how to get from one jhana to the next. And they spend all this time around the jhanas. But to me, that's wasted time because the real goal is to get to the final liberation, final knowledge, arahant, enlightenment at the last stage. 
everybody should be focusing their mind there on eliminating the 10 fetters. So if we spend a lot of time trying to understand what these jhanas are, trying to figure out which jhana we're in, try to figure out which jhana we're moving to, that's just taking you away from the ultimate goal, which is enlightenment and focusing on the 10 fetters. So while there's definitely knowledge around these four jhanas and it's important to, to know about them, as you get closer and as you're getting into these jhanas, I will teach them to you. But prior to you getting there, it doesn't even make sense to really talk about them much. And then even when you're in one of these jhanas, it's not like, all right, hooray, you've met this jhana. Let's give you a certificate. No, it's like, okay, well, you're in jhana too. Okay, keep on going. You know, it's like no big deal. It's like, all right, you're moving along. When the jhanas start showing up and you start seeing this in your meditation practice and in your daily life, it's kind of like an indication that all things are kind of firing on the right cylinders. You've got the right gasoline, you've got the right oil, you've got the right filters, you've got the right tires. This car is moving forward because we're seeing this forward progression. We're seeing the jhanas are starting to be developed in the mind. But it's not time to celebrate. Even when you get to enlightenment, it's not time to celebrate. There's no like amazing ecstatic celebration when you feel like you've gotten to enlightenment. Getting to this jhanas are essentially an indication to you and to your teacher that things are headed in the right direction and keep working. You still got a lot of work to do. You're not done by any stretch of the imagination. You're really almost kind of just getting started when you start hitting these jhanas because now all things are firing on the right cylinders. So I don't spend a lot of time teaching these jhanas in trying to figure out which jhana you're in because they're not permanent. The goal is to get you to enlightenment. And the more time we spend talking about the jhanas, the less time you're going to be spending training and working towards arahant. So it's better to just move right through it because they're shaky, they're unstable, they're impermanent. It doesn't really benefit you to, to do a lot of work to figure out all these jhanas. Thanks, David. We have no more questions. So let's move to the next one, which is starting and conducting meditation. Okay. Here I went through a bunch of different things in the book towards the end of this chapter to really make sure that you understand meditation more in depth. The first one I talk about is the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. I've talked about this in other talks as well. Essentially, what you're doing in meditation is you're using those four positions that the Buddha shared in order to put the body in comfortable positions, but not luxurious, so that you can access the mind, right? How do you get to the boss? You got to go through the employees, right? You always got to go through the employees to get to the boss. So you've got to go through the body to get to the boss. This is why if you're feeling pain or like one person was asking about numbness in the feet. If you're feeling any of these kind of painful sensations or numbness in the body, you've got to fix that. You've got to appease the employee, the body, in order to get to the mind, the boss. So you can read about this in the chapter, and I talk more about this, about how the mind is the boss and the body's the employee, and we have to kind of appease the employee, appease the body, in order to get to the mind and train the mind. 
The second thing here is I want to make sure you understand setting up mindfulness in front of you. These are the Buddha's words. These aren't my words. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. And what the Buddha said is prior to meditation, we need to set up mindfulness in front of us. Essentially, what you need to do is you need to build awareness of mind prior to meditation. You don't want to just walk in and plop down and do meditation. You're probably not going to get the most results and most benefit out of that. Probably what you want to do in order to appease this body, the employee, to get to the mind and set up mindfulness in front of you is you probably want to make sure you go to the bathroom, empty out the organs, urinate, defecate, whatever you need to do. You may need to do a little bit of a stretch. Who knows? It's up to you. Some people choose to do a little bit of prayer, maybe not, depending on what your practice is. You want to get your body nice and comfortable. You may want to do some chanting, which is what I use as part of setting up mindfulness in front of me. Maybe not. Maybe chanting isn't your thing. But you want to do something to ease the mind into meditation, kind of coax it into meditation. Because if you just walk in the door and just plop down and try to meditate, you're probably not going to get the same amount of benefit as if you follow what the Buddha is teaching you here, which is set up mindfulness in front of you. Become aware of the mind. Set that up in front of you as part of preparing the mind for meditation. So how you do that and what you choose to do is totally up to you. I put in the book what I do in order to set up mindfulness in front of me, but that's unique to me. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you're going to do. And I even share that in the book. I say, you know, I'm sharing this not as a way to tell you to do all these things that I do, but just as kind of an example of the diversity of things that you could do. And you choose what you think is best for you to kind of set up this mindfulness, awareness of mind, and ease the mind into meditation. The third thing, and hitting on the question that was asked earlier, is kind of like time, frequency, and schedule of meditation. This is by far the most common question asked about meditation, is how long should they meditate, what frequency, and what kind of schedule? The answer here is that there is no special allotted time to meditate. There is no set fixed frequency or set schedule. Everybody's going to be different. Every day is going to be different. If you try to set up a set fixed time or a set frequency or a set schedule, that's just looking for permanence. The mind is craving permanence. This is the whole problem with the unenlightened mind is it's always going to try to latch on to something and it's always going to try to have permanence. So what you need to do is you need to throw that out the door and eliminate that craving for the mind to hold on to something fixed. So even down to meditation, it's going to try to say, okay, 30 minutes twice a day, 20 minutes three times a day, whatever that is. If somebody's giving you that kind of detail, that's just an attachment. It's impossible for you to set up a time, frequency, and schedule and do that permanently for the rest of your life. It's not possible. You're never going to meditate for the exact amount of time every day. You're never going to meditate the same frequency every day. And you're never going to meditate the same schedule every day because it's impermanent. So why even try to set this up in the mind 
It's just going to cause discontentness. I don't even suggest you time your meditation. Sit down in meditation, lie, stand, walk, and just meditate. Whenever you feel like you're done, you're done. If that's five minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour, three hours, whatever that is, it is. You're going to need to meditate a whole, whole, whole lot in order to get to enlightenment. And if you try to set up five minutes, three times a day, 30 minutes, two times a day, whatever it is, that's just kind of erroneous, grasping, clinging, craving, attachment. Just know that meditation is like filling up a bucket of water. You're going to have to put a lot of scoops of water into this bucket to fill it up. And if you can put one scoop in, put in one scoop. In one particular session, if you can put in three or four scoops, put in three or four scoops. Just do your meditation. Don't be fixed because if you set a certain time, say 30 minutes, the mind is either going to be short of that and you're going to beat yourself up because you only got to 15 minutes. You're going to feel guilty and shameful that you didn't get there. Or you're going to want to do more than 30 minutes and you're deep in meditation and then the alarm goes off. Beep, 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 beep. Oh, if I would have just not set the alarm, I could have gotten more benefit. So why set up this alarm where you're trying to determine the future? Even 30 minutes from now, that's the future. The goal is to be in the present moment. Focus on the breath. Train the mind to be in the present moment. If you're setting an alarm for 10, 15, 30 minutes from now, you're trying to determine the future. You don't know what the future is going to be. So don't try to set up an alarm. Just let it go. Just meditate for as long as you need to. Because even if you set that alarm, you're probably going to be sitting there in meditation. Is it 30 minutes yet? Is it 30 minutes yet? Is it 30 minutes yet? And the mind's just going to keep cycling and craving. And it's not beneficial to the mind. So just get rid of it. If I were you, I would set up at least once a day where you're meditating, either morning or evening. Build that up and meditate for longer and longer periods as you go throughout your life at least once a day for longer and longer periods. As that becomes more stable and more steady and you develop your practice, move that to twice a day if you can. I always suggest morning and night. What you'll notice is morning is going to set up your day really nicely. Nighttime is going to help you sleep. And then you'll wake up refreshed and do another meditation session. But you have to build up to that. You have to slowly build up to that. And then if you want to do like Gautama Buddha did is he meditated three times a day, morning, middle of day and evening. That will absolutely produce the best benefits for you. But again, you may have to ramp up to that. And when you choose to do that or how you choose to do that is completely up to you. If you want to come out of the gate and try to do three times a day right from the beginning, go for it. More power to you. But if you want to kind of do like a more slow, gradual ramping up, just start with once a day in the morning or the nighttime. Do that for a few weeks. See how that affects your mind. Expand the amount of time that you do each session for longer and longer periods. And then when you start seeing the benefits, move that to twice a day. And then if you'd like, eventually move that to three times a day. There's some days where I meditate once a day. There's some days I meditate twice a day. There's some days I meditate three, four, five, six times a day. There's an occasional day where I don't meditate at all. 
And I don't feel guilty. I don't feel shameful. I don't feel bad about that at all. I just make sure the next day that I get two, three, four meditation sessions in. So this idea of having a set time, frequency, or schedule, it's impossible for you to stick to that. You're, it's just gonna cause you discontentedness. So just slowly ramp up your practice where you're starting with once a day, move to twice a day, and then if you'd like to do three times or more, you're gonna notice more benefit with that, okay? And always work to expand your amount of time for each session. Fill up this bucket of water. I've actually done meditation sometimes for one, two, three minutes. I've started meditating, got into a meditation session, one, two, three minutes, and then my son walks in and says, Dad, I, would, I need to go over here. Can you take me over here? And if it's something important, then sure, I just stop and go take him. Whereas if I'm attached to meditation, I'm gonna be angry, I'm gonna be discontent, I'm gonna be frustrated, I'm trying to hold on to meditation too tightly. But if I recognize that everything's impermanent and he's got an important need, then I will just go and go take care of it. Hey, I got one, two, three minutes of benefit. I can always restart my meditation another time. So don't grasp and hold on or have attachment or craving even for meditation or for a specific time, frequency, or schedule of meditation. We already covered sleepiness during meditation and how to remedy that, how to use it for your benefit in certain situations, or how to remedy that as well. So I won't go through sleepiness during meditation. We've already covered the physical sensations in the body as part of meditation, so I'm not going to cover that here. And then let's cover meditation with external stimulus. Sometimes people learn to meditate with phone apps or music or mala beads or gongs or different things like this. Those things may be helpful at certain times, but 80 to 90% of your practice should be just the body, the mind, and the breath. If your mind is attached to meditating only with an app, that app is impermanent. If you develop your meditation practice only around this app, when that app's gone, you're not gonna be able to meditate because it's gone. You haven't developed a practice that's just the body, the mind, and the breath. Or if you're used to meditating with a certain type of music or certain beads or any particular external stimulus, then your mind is essentially craving this external stimulus and it can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy to meditate unless it has this external thing. These external stimuluses are just cravings, desire, attachments that the mind is clinging to and holding on to and it can't meditate unless it has them. So don't train your mind to meditate based on music or apps or mala beads or gongs or things like this. If you're currently meditating that way, okay, that's fine. It's gotten you to this point. Now what you need to do is slowly, gradually move your mind away from that where maybe one session you use it, one session you don't. One session you use it, one session you don't. Then use it for one session. Don't use it for two or three sessions. 
Use it for one session. Don't use it for two or three sessions. And slowly move your mind away from these external stimulants because these are cravings. These are attachments. These are desires that the mind's trying to hold on to. And it would be much more beneficial for you to develop a practice where it's just your body, the mind, and the breath because you know you'll always have those things with you until your very last breath when you die. That's when you'll eliminate the body, the mind, and the breath. These things will break up. It's called the breakup of the body, where the body and the mind separate. So if you develop a practice in this way where it's just the body, the mind, and the breath, then you can meditate anywhere at any time. And that's what you're going to need as you move around this world and you're on vacation or holiday or you move from one place to the other or you end up in a hospital or different things. You need to be able to meditate on a consistent daily basis. And if you develop a practice around the body, the mind and the breath, then you can meditate anywhere, anytime. And this is really beneficial to train the mind in this way. So if you're meditating with external stimulants now, slowly move your mind away from them and develop a practice where it's just the body, the mind, and the breath. An independent, dedicated, active training session where you're purposefully training the mind. Now, if 10 or 20% of the time you would like to be around other people and do a group meditation or involve like a gong meditation or something like this, then go do that. You know, it's a nice way to kind of invigorate your meditation practice where you can have a gong or you can have friends or a community of people that you're meditating around. But 80 to 90% of the time, it should just be the body, the mind, and the breath. Nothing else. Of course, a cushion or a blanket or something, if you need that to keep you warm at different times, then use that. But then at certain times, Practice without the blanket. Practice without the cushion. Go do walking meditation. Go do standing meditation. You've got to train the mind to let go of all of these things that it's going to try to grasp onto and it's going to try to hold on to. Sometimes if you're used to meditating in the dark and that's what the mind holds on to, test the mind. Turn on the light sometime and meditate in bright light and test the mind. Do that for a week or two. Anything that you see the mind's holding on to and it craves it for comfort, it craves it to be pleased, it craves it to have this pleasure in the mind, try to eliminate it and mix up the variables. Try to introduce impermanence so that the mind learns that it's not going to always get what it wants. And by doing this, you're going to train the mind to understand impermanence. This is very important. Do we have any questions, Max? No questions this time. Okay, I think I just have one more here and we'll be done for today. Essentially, what I would like to end on is never give up. Never, ever, ever give up. Don't ever give up meditating. You need to practice consistently, regularly, be committed and dedicated to it. If you skip a couple of days because you're sick or you just forgot or it's been a couple of months or a couple of years since you've meditated and you haven't developed a practice, that's okay. No need to feel guilty or shameful or beat yourself up about that. 
but never give up. Always come back to meditation because it is training the mind through meditation that is going to allow you to eliminate certain qualities from the mind or cultivate certain qualities in the mind. You're going to need meditation. You're going to need to develop this practice of meditation. And as if you give up, you're basically kind of submitting that you're going to be reborn. And you're going to most likely be reborn into one of the lower realms. And as Gautama Buddha says, you will regret it later. So whatever you do in life, no matter where life takes you, no matter what the twists and turns, ups and downs of life are, never, ever, ever give up in meditation. In fact, if life becomes very difficult for you, if it's very challenging, if you're noticing you lost your job, if you're noticing that you're lonely and you're bored and you're sad and you're frustrated, those are the times that you should really rededicate yourself the most and actually commit yourself to meditating. Oftentimes, when things happen to us, like getting laid off of a job, or we lose a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or we lose one to death, or bad things are happening to us in life, those are the times where we oftentimes are interested to give up and stop doing these good, wholesome practices because we feel like life is kind of smothering us and putting pressure on us and we can't even see the light because we're so much in the darkness from the sadness and loneliness and boredom or guilt or shame. Traumatic things happen to us. Those are the times when we kind of want to give in to the darkness and we want to just retreat and kind of make ourselves small and give up on all of this stuff. But those times when life is the most difficult, that's the time to really dedicate yourself the most. And don't ever, 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 ever give up on meditation. You've got to have a daily, regular, consistent practice that is improving the quality of the mind and continuing to help you awaken further and further and further to this enlightened mind. So the Buddha's words, meditate bhikkhus, do not be negligent, lest you will regret it later. This is my instruction to you. Another way to say this is meditate. Don't be complacent. You will experience all the benefits in meditation. This is my instruction to you. Don't ever give up. As you meditate more and more and more, you will notice more and more and more benefits and you will be very pleased with that benefit. This is my instruction to you. So thank you for joining the class. Thank you for deciding to learn and practice the teachings of Gautama Buddha. It's the very best thing that you could ever do for yourself, for those close to you, and for all of humanity. So enjoy the rest of your day. Be sure to commit to a dedicated, independent, active training sessions of the mind where you're actively training the mind through breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. Work on developing your practice and continue to work at developing this practice more and more and more. Never give up. 
Thank you so much. สวัสดีครับ Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit Patreon.com/forward/slash/supportBuddha. To access more teachings, visit BuddhaDailyWisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.